There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we'll go through the economics of EVs. Now, this is a special episode focusing on my experience driving a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus for 200,000 plus kilometers over about three and a half years. This episode will be an in-depth look, everything from owning an EV and towards the end of the episode, I'll also go through the latest incentive to get an EV, the FPT tax saving. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Now, some of the topics we'll discuss in this episode is purchase price, cost of electricity, cost of fuel, wear and tear, the Tesla Model 3 autopilot, not the FSD, the tire change costs, the cost of servicing the Model 3, the annoying bits of the car, the brilliant bits of the car, the software and its upgrade. What about the dreaded EV road tax, which is a Victoria specific thing? The charging infrastructure? Is it a pain to charge the car? Will I ever go back to a nice vehicle? The Tesla service? Is it any good? And what about the recent EV discounts with respect to FBT? So there's plenty to cover in this episode. Now, if you haven't listened to my earlier episodes, I break down the cost down even back then as well and talk about it in depth and we'll cover a lot of it here. But we've done it in episode 58, which is the economics of driving an EV, episode 93, which is 12 months of owning an EV, episode 123, which is a 100,000 kilometer EV update, and episode 225, which is 150,000 kilometer EV update. And of course, in this one, we'll talk about the two 200,000 kilometer EV update. Now, just to reassure everyone, I'm not a Tesla fanboy. And in fact, I don't really like Elon Musk. I think his focus is weaned in Tesla. He's got too many side hustles and side projects going on. And he probably, you know, probably should be stepping down as a CEO of Tesla. That is that founders and visionaries may not always make for great CEOs for all of the stages of a company. And I think Tesla is moving to the next phase as a company. Now, Ashwant Damodaran talks about this in one of his valuation talks. Have a listen to him on YouTube. Now to the main topic, what has it been like to own and operate an EV? Now, of course, this is a fifth episode I've done about my Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus. Let's dig it deeper into the details. What is the total odometer reading? Now, it's around 200,000 kilometers. That's around 5,000 kilometers per month on average since I first purchased it back in September 2019. Now, this is a bit less 
on monthly average compared to my previous episodes because since then I have moved on with a couple of my jobs. I've resigned from them, which required a lot of driving, and I've since got a lot of work-from-home options as well. The total kilowatts used in terms of energy and power is 28,372 kilowatt hours. Now, this is the figure it shows me in the car. I'm not a super geek where I track the usage, including sentry mode, etc. And in fact, I don't even have the sentry mode on most of the time because most of my parking is very secure. Now, just a word of advice before I go into the in-depth figures, the figures quoted in this episode are my figures, and they are rough figures based on information I have collated over the last three and a half years. Your numbers will vary based on how much you drive, where you live, and what sort of weather conditions, etc. So make sure you do your approximate sums. So how much did it cost me to buy the car? I bought it in 2019. And I bought the basic version, which is the Model 3 Standard Range Plus, which is the cheapest version that Tesla have. And the purchase price was $66,000 base with the standard autopilot included. I did not get the FSD upgrades. It wasn't even available at the time. So I haven't bothered upgrading it. It came in just under the luxury car tax at the time, which was a bonus. And in January 2023, Tesla provided all Model 3 customers a chance to try their enhanced autopilot. I don't think it was their full FST technology. And it was mainly navigate on autopilot, etc. Now, my personal experience and opinion when I did switch it on, it was free. I tried it. It was more of a Christmas 2022 bonus. I think it was rubbish. And I don't think it was worth the $5,000 or $10,000 or whatever they charge for it. After about a week of use, I just found that I constantly disengaged it repeatedly. The FSD is not as advanced as they purport it to be, but the basic autopilot, which I use every single drive, is actually very good. More about that later in the episode. The purchase process at the time was really easy. I literally walked into the Chadston store and saw the car. I didn't test drive it. I'd done a lot of research about it online and just ordered one online from within the store. The guy just, you know, helped me order it. I took handover in September 2019 and it was during the first week of the launch. So I was one of the first customers back then. And I thought the pricing even back then was very aggressive when compared to comparable cars such as Mercedes C-Class or BMW 3 Series or the Audi A4, which was sort of my target market. I was really keen on buying a Mercedes C-Class at the time, but I then factor in the petrol cost. It was just a no-brainer for me to buy an electric car. And at the time, Tesla appeared to be the best car on the market. In more recent times, particularly in 2021, Tesla reduced their price to $57,000, which I thought was incredibly aggressive pricing. Then it went back up to $63,000 in GST, which works out to be around $69,000 to buy. Now it's sitting around $64,000 plus on road. So, you know, it's definitely less than $70,000 to buy a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus. I think you can actually get it for like 60 3000 or something like that nowadays. And Tesla have made some, you know, minor price adjustments in recent months as well. Sometimes they raise it by a few hundred bucks, sometimes they discount it by a few hundred bucks. Uh, you know, that's obviously based on supply and demand and overall sales, which I think has stagnated, particularly in the last six months at the time of recording. But I think things will improve 
particularly in Australia, as petrol prices and just a cost of living crisis is going up, uh, particularly when it comes to fuel and servicing of ICE cars, which is internal combustion engine cars. Now, how much do I drive? A lot is an underestimate. I do drive a lot since purchase, and it's been around 40 months or so at the time of recording. I've driven around 200,000 kilometers, which averages out to be 166 kilometers every single day. And this includes all of my conferences, my holidays, et cetera, where I'm not actually driving the car. Usually online, I quote around 180 to 250 kilometers per day. So this sort of, you know, roughly works out to be about 166 kilometers per day. Now, some days I drive more, some days I drive less, et cetera. Now, the number one question I get asked about the car is, what about the range? The range is something a lot of people ask me about. And I used to get asked this a lot on the street when I first bought the car at the charging stations. People would come up to me and say, how far can you drive this thing? This was especially when I drove a lot of the times in the rural areas and in the regional areas, and I still do. Every time they used to see my car back then, that question would just keep popping up. And I think at the time, the reason was they think it was impossible to drive that far without actually having to recharge again. Sometimes I was, you know, 200, 250 kilometers away from Melbourne City. But in the last 12 months, I've noticed I haven't had a single question about range from the public passerby, even in country Victoria. And I think this is because EVs are much more popular. They see these cars roaming around the city and country areas all the time. There isn't a day that I drive in Melbourne that I don't see any electric cars, plenty of Teslas, plenty of BVDs as well. So when I first got the car, when I first plugged it in, um, it started at a rated range of about 384 kilometers. Now on a 100% charge, I recently checked, I get around 340 to 345 kilometers. Now after about 12 months of owning the car, it dropped from 384 kilometers to around 364 to 378 kilometers. And that's a range loss overall since I've purchased the car of about 39 kilometers, which is not bad in my opinion. Uh, 10% range loss after 200,000 kilometers. It's way better than I expected. And most of my range loss happened after the first 12 months. I haven't really lost much range in the last two years or so. So I'm incredibly surprised how well the battery has held up, despite my repeated beatings to it, not physical beatings, but in terms of driving. I'm also on the same 12 volt battery since I bought the car. The car has obviously the lithium ion batteries at the base of the car, but it's also got the 12 volt battery. Ironically, since I've bought my Tesla, I also had an ICE car at the time. We bought an ICE car, which is just a Japanese um, SUV. And it's already had one battery change at 30,000 kilometers at a cost of about $500. This is during the 2022 post-pandemic inflationary times. So the irony is my Tesla hasn't had a replacement 12 volt battery since I've purchased it. Whereas my Japanese SUV had to have a replacement just after 30,000 kilometers. Now it's worth pointing out, I don't drive it showing the range all the time, you know, because you know, just like I don't drive my ICE cars with their range showing, it's not something that I do and never used to it. I drive with my Tesla with the percentage charge function on because I think my car is more like a device, a phone or a laptop. It gives a better indication of battery range rather than absolute kilometers because it changes depending on my driving style and the conditions. The kilometer range is calibrated based on driving dynamics. So your most recent drive is what Tesla salesperson told me. But 
you might want to do your own research on that. So when it comes to range, we're looking at about 340 to 345 kilometers after 200,000 on the Odo. Now, the factors which affect the range are, number one, how aggressively you drive. Number two, if there's any weather conditions like headwinds, rain, which seems to chew up a lot of range. Number three is the terrain. Are you going uphill, downhill, flat road? How much regen you're using? Number four is, is autopilot on or off? Now, autopilot, I think in my experience, I found it largely inefficient range-wise because it doesn't seem to maximize regen. And it also depends on how much heating you use. The newer generation models, mine is the first generation, uh, but the newer generation models, which are actually made in China, have better heat pumps, which are far more energy efficient than my Model 3, which is made in America. Now, the heat pumps in my generation is actually quite bad and take up a lot of energy, particularly in winter. So the range drops, you know, a decent amount in winter. So in fact, my range and my driving ability will be much better if I had a newer generation of Model 3. Now, the tech on range and batteries nowadays is just so much better than when I first bought my car. So always take this episode with that grain of salt that I've bought the September 2019 first generation made in America standard range plus Tesla Model 3. Now, the cost of electricity. Since purchase, we have switched over to off-peak electricity rates. Off-peak rates where I live is approximately 15 cents per kilowatt hour. And there are plenty of options nowadays. So please do shop around. Most power companies should have off-peak rates. Now, just a heads up, if you're in Victoria, there's been a second round of $250 of electricity money that you can get. I think if you just compare their energy bills, I don't know if the time of airing, whether that'll still be live, but this has been something that the Victorian state government has initiated. They basically give us free money, thanks inflation. Essentially, you know, you can just get 250 bucks into your bank account if you just compare the energy bills. And I don't think you even have to swap energy companies. It's basically going to a website and basically comparing the bills. I don't know if other states have this program. So if it's still live, Google it, take advantage of it, it's free money, and of course, invest it. Now, the main reason we switch to off-peak rates when it comes to electricity is that the Tesla has a capability to schedule charge. I only charge at home during off-peak rates, which is after 11 p.m. During the day, we have solar, which powers most of our house, and we make sure we use appliances during the daytime between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. It's all timed, depending on the day, to capitalize on this as much as possible. So the total electricity used to drive 200,000 kilometers is 28,372 kilowatt hours. Therefore, if I had charged my Tesla Model 3 at off-peak rates at my home all the time, this is assuming that I charge at 100% at home, is around $4,255. Now, I think during the entire ownership, I've only charged the car fully during the daytime once. Most of the time, the car is out of the home during the daytime, so I don't charge in the home during the daytime. It would not make any fiscal sense for me to do this. In fact, I live very close to free charging stations next to my house. On average, I found that I charge about 35% of my charging is free, thanks to public charge points. So my actual cost of running this car to drive 200,000 kilometers is only $2,765 over the last three and a half years. 
Now, in previous episodes, I used to charge 47% of the time using public charging infrastructure, but that has reduced because I've changed workplaces, hence the average is now lower. Now, the Tesla app also has specific charging details. It compares your home charging versus outside home charging. It's obviously clear enough to be able to find out where you are so you can track your charging cost as you use the car. Now, if I had basically driven the same amount of kilometers using my previous fuel-efficient diesel, we got to compare the costs. So the peak performance that I would get with my previous diesel car would be around 800 kilometers per fuel tank. This is the best efficiency. And sometimes it'd be 700 kilometers, sometimes it'd be 750, but mostly I would get around 800 kilometers, you know, that would be my best efficiency. So I'm gonna use the best efficiency for my previous ICE car. And the fuel tank capacity was 53 liters. And I Googled the average fuel price in 2022 and 2023 so far is around $1.75 in Melbourne. Recently, earlier in the year, it's gone up to $1.98 some days, depending, of course, which day you fuel up. And the fuel excise discount, of course, was introduced last year, but it's been taken off in September 2022. So the total cost, if I was driving my previous fuel-efficient diesel for every full tank on an average of $1.75 per litre, would have been $92.75. Now, given driving habits, the total number of fuel tanks required to achieve 200,000 odometer is around 250 fuel tanks. This is assuming optimal efficiency of 800 kilometers per fuel tank, which we all know is not really achievable, but I'm purposely skewing this argument against my EV. Therefore, the total cost of fuel that I would have spent over the last three and a half years driving 200,000 kilometers would have been $23,187 in an ice car. Now, if the fuel cost goes back up to $2 per litre, then the cost significantly escalates to $26,500. Now, because of diesel, I had to buy AdBlue, uh, which around 10 litres is around 60 bucks. Good quality used to be between 40 and 50 bucks plus inflation, blah, blah, blah. So I've sort of factored in around $60. And the total AdBlue that I would have needed is 208 litres at a cost of $1,250. I sort of did some research on this from a previous car. Every 960 kilometers would require around a liter of AdBlue. The total cost of fuel, including the AdBlue on top of that, is $23,187 plus $1,250, so $24,437. If fuel was $2 per litre, then total cost, including the AdBlue, would have been $27,750. That's significant. Now, there are some unintended savings when driving an EV, which includes never really having to visit a petrol station. You don't need to attend a petrol station. I don't go to a fuel station ever. Don't really need to. Except maybe when I want to put water in the windshield wiper fluid compartment or maybe tyre pressure checks, which is not that frequently. But if you had the equipment at home, you could do both of these at home and never have to go to a petrol station. The unnecessary expenditure you may end up buying at the petrol station whilst refuelling simply adds up. The estimated per stop for me would have been around a dollar. 
Now, that's not much when you think about it, but in my case, I would have added up to $191 over three and a half years. And again, not a huge expense, but still an expense. And my financial independence brain tells me it's worth around $3,833 over 40 years. And that's only after three and a half years of EV driving. Assume 8% return and a 0.2% expense ratio. You can go nuts on that money. So that's the fuel versus electricity cost. Again, anywhere between 24.4 to 27.7 in terms of cost of fuel compared to my cost, which is around $2,700 of electricity. That's 10 times more expensive on fuel alone. Now, the cost of tires. Now, the Model 3 also needs obviously tires to run. It was around $1,500, which was Michelin quality. And I've only had two sets of tires changed. The third set is coming at around 240,000 kilometers. Now, one of the things I note is my tires don't wear as much as other drivers. And this is likely because I drive mostly on freeways. Heaps of people have contacted me about this. that They've required tires much earlier. And I think it's likely due to mostly freeway driving for me. Not many turns, crazy cruisy drives most days. I drive very early in the morning and very late at night. So the wear and tear possibly is very minimal. I'm not sure. My previous car, it cost around $1,200. Now, I've not accounted for the quality of tyres. It certainly wasn't Michelin for my previous cars. The Model 3 does have high-end tyres because I do drive a lot. I need good tyres. The previous car was, I think, Bridgestone tyres mostly. And these costs include wheel alignment each time. And when I first bought the Tesla, not many tyre shops would actually even touch it. But now almost every tyre shop will change your EV tyres. So it's not really a big problem. Now, the cost of servicing. Now, it really pisses me off when the media talk only about petrol costs and compare that to EVs. The other massive cost saving for EVs is servicing. EVs don't need to be regularly serviced. I repeat, they don't need to be regularly serviced. Why? Because they have less moving parts in general, which means less wear and tear. So the total cost of the servicing so far from a Model 3, which is I did my first service after 140,000 kilometers only because I got a bit nervous. I actually took it to Tesla and I said, you need to do something about this because I'm a bit worried that there might be some wear and tear here. And they actually said, you probably don't need to do this, but I did it anyway. Cost me around $446.79. That's it since I bought the car. Now, the parts that I needed was a HVAC filter for the air conditioning, which is $54.54. The wiper blades, which is $31.82 times two. The brake fluid check, which was 24 bucks, and the brake fluid bleed and flush, which was $216, and the labor was only 90 bucks. Since then, I've actually never had to service the car. The 12 watt battery, like I said, it's still going, surprisingly. And I make sure that it's not charging all the time, it's plugged as much as possible. And the importance here is that Distinguishing feature of an EV is a limited number of moving parts. There are far more parts as a nice car, which can break down and wear down, so the chances of needing a repair is much more likely in a nice car rather than an EV. So you need to take that into account. And if you're a motoring journalist or a journalist listening in, if you're comparing EVs versus ICE cars and not including the cost of servicing an ICE car, you're simply lying. So that's really important. Now, let's compare that to servicing of my previous ICE car. And I've sort of, you know, given the benefit to the ICE car by saying that for a European car, let's say $400 per service on average. To be honest, that's a pretty low figure. 
Most European cars need servicing every 20,000 kilometres, on average, sometimes more and sometimes less. And most non-European cars need servicing every 10,000 kilometres. So my previous European car would have cost me $4,000. If it was non-European, would have cost me $8,000 of servicing to drive 200,000 kilometres. Now, most ice car companies and dealerships make their money on servicing. This is one of their big revenue streams. Now, I'm assuming that my ice car never broke down, never had repairs, never had any parts changes, which is very unlikely. But again, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the ice car, to see how it compares. And I'm skewing this against my Model 3. So here's a direct comparison for cost so far. My Model 3 total running cost was $4,255 for electricity. Now, my cost, because of the public charge points, was only $2,765. That's $2,765. Then you add the servicing, which is $446.79. So the total cost was $4,701, roughly. Now, if you add in the tyres, including that, it'd be $7,701. Now, my cost, because again, for public charging... 35% of my charging member is free, including the tires, including the servicing for three and a half years was only $6,211.79. Compare that to my ICE car, which would have cost, including petrol, servicing, AdBlue, tires. If it was European, it would have cost me $32,087 of running costs. If it was non-European, including all of those, including servicing, would have cost me $36,087. So the comparison here is anywhere between $32,000 and $36,000 in running costs for your petrol car compared to $6,211 running a Model 3 over three and a half years. So the savings are starting to add up driving an EV. The worst case scenario for a non-European car I save around $28,386 over three and a half years. The best case scenario, skewed against the EV, I'd only save $24,386. When I say best case, I'm talking about best case for the ICE car. In my specific case, in my personal situation, I've saved $25,875.21. That's over three and a half years. So the per year cost saving for me on average has been $7,762. Now, if you've listened to my previous episodes, notice the cost saving is a bit higher as I've not included the EV road tax, which is unique to Victorian customers and Victorian road users. But I think it's coming across the nation. And the other big factor here is the petrol prices are rising compared to my previous episodes. I think in one of the episodes I used $1.50 and the other one was $1.25. In this one, I've used $1.75. So is an EV worth it for me? Absolutely, because I drive a lot. And also the purchase price of my EV was exactly the same as what I would have bought buying an ICE car. Is an EV cheaper than an ICE car compared to a cheap ICE car to buy? No, it's not cheaper, but it's getting cheaper. It's an unfair comparison. We need to compare car features versus car features. I get a lot more features in my car for purchase price of 66000 than almost any other comparable ICE car at a similar price and a similar brand level. Is an EV a better car overall compared to an ICE car? In my case, it is. It's faster. It's cheaper to run. 
there's less cost of servicing. There's electricity, which is significantly cheaper. Did I mention it was faster? Much more about that later in the episode. Now, I don't buy this whole notion that I'm charging my car with coal and all that rubbish. The reason is, the evidence is, even if you charge your electric car using 100% dirty fuel, the efficiency of the electric car means that you lose less energy. You use less energy, you lose less energy, the conversion is much more efficient. An internal combustion engine is only 30% efficient, and an electric motor and battery is up to 80% efficient. So even if you use dirty fuel, it's still more efficient and cleaner and cheaper. You're using less energy to drive more kilometers. Now, obviously the question beckons, how much was my ICE car prior to buying the Model 3? As we all know, ICE cars on the whole are cheaper than any EV. There is another bit where the media and some people don't compare apples to apples. First, they don't compare the servicing cost of ICE cars compared to EVs, and they don't compare the features that you get in an ICE car compared to an EV. My ICE car prior to Model 3 to have similar features would have cost around $66,000 to $70,000. In fact, to get basic autopilot and functionality that a Model 3 has, it probably cost you more than seventy grand. So I've compared both cars as accurately as possible with the purchase price to be very similar. That's how comparisons need to be made. Otherwise, if you compare an EV, which is obviously more expensive than a significantly cheap car, then it's an unfair comparison in my humble opinion because you're not getting the same quality, nor are you getting the same features. And this is a common mistake that people do. And again, if you're a motoring journalist, you need to compare apples to apples. The only thing about the Model 3 is the cost of software upgrade. Zero. In my previous car, there's no such thing. I've opted not to get the FSD, which is a full self-driving technology or enhanced autopilot, because I think there's very little application in Australia for it. I think Tesla may be moving to an FSD subscription service, they keep talking about it, which is hopefully transferable between cars. So I would not recommend anyone buying the FSD or paying that extra five or $10,000 for a product, which may be changing in the coming years. So Elon Musk, if you're listening, your FSD sucks. It's not worth 10 grand in Australia. And I'm not recommending any of the listeners who are thinking about getting a Tesla to buy enhanced autopilot nor the FSD. Now, I'm not sure if other EV models out there, various brands have FSD technology yet. Now, one of the stupid things about the Model 3 is that the auto park feature is not standard. You've got to upgrade. It's part of the enhanced autopilot or FSD functionality, which is ridiculous. Given most European cars and Korean cars are better auto park features that come in standard. Now, the newer Model 3 has all five-seat heater functionality. Finally, something so simple that's taken so long for Tesla to implement. And it's probably worth noting that all Model 3s now are built in with hardware and they use software to limit some of those features. So if you can just upgrade certain things at a later date, if you wish... This, I guess, is a good thing so the car can improve over time because you keep getting software updates over the air. But I've noticed that recent software updates for Model 3 and Model Y are pretty minor. Not much has changed in the past few upgrades. In fact, one of the most stupidest software updates that they've installed, I think it was late 2022, was the auto wipers using a different mechanism to get activated, which is stupid and doesn't work well. The auto high beams is compulsory if you're using autopilot, even the basic autopilot, unless you manually disengage the auto high beams 
Again, a feature which is beyond stupid and doesn't work well, so I'm constantly disengaging the damn auto beams. Tesla need to fix this. I'm not the only one. It's all over Facebook forums and online forums and how stupid this feature is and how ridiculously useless and poorly functional it is. Which goes to show that great companies like Tesla make great products. There's some really stupid things. Now, how does the software update work? Surprisingly, it's similar to your phone or laptop. Essentially, the way it works is the car tells you when new software is ready to go. You park the car at home, it connects to your Wi-Fi, and you authorize the download of new software, schedule the installation just like your phone or your computer or tablet. And by the morning, the whole thing just upgrades itself. Easy and simple. The version of the software is displayed in the car screen and your phone app. It's this sort of functionality you just won't get in any other non-EVs. Now, I know the other car manufacturers are learning very, very quickly. The fact that the car even gets quicker, cheaper, and more functional as you use it, all for zero extra dollars, is quite amazing. My latest software update involved updating satellite nav, which provides live traffic, which is great, including roadblocks and most published freeway closures. Does your ice car do this? Most don't. To my knowledge, the average ICE car user does not have software updates. Maybe Mercedes and Audi might be an exception here. Most ICE cars have a key. The Tesla doesn't have a key. It just uses your phone as a key. Makes sense. And for anything computer related, you need to take it to the service people for diagnostics. That's just lame. I think car manufacturers need to get on with tech and the times and make it over the air as much as possible. Why should I take my car to the service just software updates or software improvements. It doesn't make any sense. Now, the next topic is about charging infrastructure and total range and all that sort of stuff. So before we go into that, let's take a quick break and then I'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay, we're back. Now, we're still talking about my experience driving a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus for 200,000 kilometers. So this is an update. And we've just gone in-depth about the cost associated with running it. And then I'm talking about some of the nitty-gritties in the second part of this episode. We're up to charging infrastructure. Now, I'm lucky enough to be living in Melbourne, which has pretty good public charging infrastructure where I work and where I live. In fact, there's a supercharger very close to my house. and 
For me, the average daily driving has been 180 to 250 kilometers. The car doesn't need charging for these sort of distances. I think this whole range anxiety is just totally overrated. Just download PlugShare, which is a free app, and you'll see how well connected we are with charging infrastructure. Then you go to North America and Europe, you'll see that they're so much better connected, far better off than what we are. But overall, I think this whole charging infrastructure is a risk to buying EVs. It's simply bullshit. Now, I've literally supercharged my car five times for the fun of it in the three and a half years that I've used it because you don't need to. And I drive tens of thousands of kilometers per day. And I don't check my range every day anymore. I can't be bothered. It doesn't matter. So this whole charging infrastructure anxiety, again, is just overblown. Now, let's talk a little bit about range. Tesla claims a very high range for their standard Model 3, which is, I think, rubbish. They claim 491 kilometers. I think it's a gross overestimation, and no one is likely to get anywhere near that. It's a bit like the petrol cars claiming when you buy them, they say, oh, it's 3.5 liters per 100 kilometers, but the real world number is more close to six to seven liters per 100 kilometers. Now, for me, the rated range, what it shows in the car after a full charge is between 340 and 345 kilometers. When I bought it, they quoted around 400 kilometers, but it showed around 384 when I brought it home for the first time. Now, at one stage, I managed to rate it at 400 kilometer range, but that was a very brief moment. But my car is a very old Model 3. It's the first generation Model 3 made in America. There are newer versions which are made in China, the Shanghai factory, which seems to hold range a bit better because they've got better batteries and better software and better technology. Now, in terms of battery degradation, my battery hasn't really degraded much, much to my surprise, given how much I drive. I haven't done a recent service either, so don't really know if my battery is slowly dying inside. I expect it to die at some stage. The battery replacement cost is not that expensive. Again, a lot of rumors online, rubbish. I've gotten quotes around $16,000, but it has to be done by Tesla. I hope to use my dying battery if it ever dies for my home battery solution, if it's ever possible. I think a company in Melbourne is already doing it. They take the old batteries from your EV and convert it to use at home. Generally for a Model 3, the battery degradation happens in the first 12 months, then it plateaus, and I don't think it'll degrade much anymore. Again, battery degradation is all about charging habits and how you use the car. You don't charge the car in the Made in America version up to 100%. You alternate it between 80 and 90% to maintain optimal battery grade. In the newer cars, the Made in China versions, they recommend that you charge it to 100% all the time. So if you buy an EV, it doesn't matter which brand, you need to specifically ask the salesperson, what is the optimal charging habits? Check the manual and check the online YouTube video tutorials. There's so much out there and so much information for you to learn from. Now let's talk a little bit about charging habits. This is living with an EV. I charge my car nightly. I park my car in the garage. I plug it in just like I plug my iPhone in. I also charge it at public charge points, which are available where I work. And again, drive to work, plug it in, go to work, come back after an hour, it's charged. Now I've used the supercharger, the Tesla supercharger network, a whole five times since I bought the car. It's not really needed for me. And I haven't done many long road trips more than 500 kilometers. But practically, you can travel from Adelaide to Brisbane and beyond without significant hassles. And charging the car is like charging a laptop or phone. For me personally, I've forgotten to charge it once in the last three years. I actually panicked in the morning when it wasn't charged fully, but I had enough range. It wasn't a big deal. I also have a wall connector at home, which charges at single phase power 42 kilometers per hour. So again, that's plenty of charging overnight. 
takes about four hours or so to charge at off-peak rates. If you have a single phase, that's 42 k's per hour. If it's three phase, it's 80 kilometers per hour charging speed in your house. So if you're building a house, better to put in three phase. The wall connector came free of the charge when I bought the car, it was free. They just put it in the boot. But now I think it's an optional extra, which is a bit disappointing, but I think it's well worth getting it. And to get it installed, you know, anywhere between 200 to 800 bucks, not that expensive. The car has built-in scheduled charging, so you can program it to charge at off-peak rates. This is probably the best feature of the charging infrastructure of the car. I only charge after 11 p.m. because it's cheapest for me, and during the day we have members of the family at home, so we use a lot of solar for daytime use of home appliances. And I don't have a Tesla home battery installed because I don't think it's worth it in terms of cost-wise. Power cuts, we've had a few power cuts in the last three years after storms, but it didn't really affect the charging. As often the power cuts was only for a few hours at a time. But if you have a massive power cut, like a flood or anything like that, it has happened for a few days where we live. Not a flood, but we've had power cuts. Then the power supply was a real issue for the house. So you'll need to go out of your area. We had to do that to charge the car, especially if you do long distance driving like me. For everyday use, you don't need to charge it every single day if you don't want it. You might want to charge it every two or three days at a time. That should be fine. But the battery health will be an issue if you don't keep it connected. The car prefers you charge it every day, just like your laptop and smartphone. Now, one of the features which I really like about uh, EVs, and I think it should be you know, mandatory, pretty very useful for EV newbies that don't know much about it, is when you plug it in using your UMC, which is just you know to the wall socket, and let's say you have 5% charge left in the car and you want to get to 100%, when you actually plug it in and schedule the charge, It doesn't actually say this is an impossible charge because you don't have enough time to get it to 100%. Especially, you know, you've got 5% charge left, you want to plug it in at 10 p.m. and you want to take it out at 6.30 in the morning. There's not enough time in the night to charge it to 100% if you're using a slow charge. So that's called an impossible charge. And the car doesn't tell you that. The app doesn't tell you. So I know most people can work it out that it's probably going to be an impossible charge. EV newbies and, you know, the elderly and people that don't really know much about EV technology, they might not know that. And people not Tesla fanboys won't know that either, or fangirls, I should say. So what's the best thing about the car? I think overall, the car's pretty good. The standard autopilot, I think, is superior, in my humble opinion, when compared to other brands. It recognizes speeding signs, it auto adjusts on rural roads, which is useful, But sometimes it's a bit annoying because it recognizes school zones and doesn't take into account time zones for the school. So if you're driving at 10 o'clock at night and you're driving in a school zone, it'll kind of automatically adjust your speed to 40 kilometers in that zone, which is annoying. And sometimes it recognizes the 40 sign behind school buses and other buses, again, annoying. So you need to be vigilant. But overall, the basic autopilot just works. The software upgrades are a bonus. It gives the impression of new features every month or so. So you get this sort of psychological boost that you may be driving a new car every now and again or new features. The car continually improves. and My range has improved despite not buying a new car. The acceleration was decreased as a result of that, but they actually introduced software functions in order to improve your range a little bit. Now, now compared to expensive brands, I know 60,000, 66,000 is a pretty good chunk of change, but it's relatively cheap compared to some of the expensive brands, and it turns heads. The simplicity of the screen, there's no dashboard. It just makes it easier. The voice command, for me, it just works. 
The most common voice command I use is navigation. I use it all the time. I have favorite destinations plugged in. It's easy. It's free speech voice command. So a command like open glove box just works. It talks to my phone. So I just walk up to the car and it just opens. Key fobs, you don't need them. It has all of my calendar events already in it as it's synced to my phone. So it kind of knows what's happening. Sentry mode, it's great. It's got eight cameras around. And we know there are so many assholes on the road. And it just records automatically if you just honk the horn or when you park. So if you're near a Tesla, please understand the car automatically records everything as you approach the vehicle. On the asshole list are BMW drivers, Holden SSV drivers, people who drive utes. They just seem to think I'm competing with them. I'm not. Just leave me alone. Now go to YouTube and search for Tesla Ducks, which is my video which I uploaded initially in 2019. It went a bit viral around the world. Various news channels used it and I've licensed the rights to it. And in my fashion, Devraga fashion, I make money from it. So please go there, search for Tesla Ducks, watch the video, and I'll get paid. And recently, the software updates means that you can activate the camera inside the cabin if you wish. Not sure what the point of it personally is, but Tesla say it's good for safety. Uh, if you share the data, they can improve safety standards. I haven't activated it. I'll consider it. And the other useful thing is the Tesla app on your phone. You can actually live view what the car is seeing. So if your car's parked somewhere, you can actually open the app and have a look at, you know, the front of the car, have a look at the side of the car, have a look at the back of the car. So, you know, if you get an alert that someone's fiddling around with the charging cable or something like that, you can actually, you know, open the app, honk the horn and scare the crap out of them. I've done it a couple of times, which is pretty funny. Now, have I been locked out of the car? Yes. Uh, basically what happened was I went to a supercharger, left everything inside the car and then just plugged it in. And then the car automatically locked me out. And uh, essentially I called the main Tesla number, which went to California at the time. And they remotely unlocked it for me after I cited some basic stats of the car. And I think it was done via the internet because the car has 4G connectivity. Now, speaking of 4G connectivity, the monthly cost is around $10 per month. It gives you satellite maps, gives you live traffic, which is very accurate, including roadworks. Like recently, the East Link was closed and it was basically diverted my, my sat-nav uh, to avoid that, which is great. It takes into account roadworks when calculating a navigation, which is even awesome. So again, for 10 bucks per month, I think it's worth it. And for those of you that live in Melbourne, the M1 is finally free of roadworks, I think, mostly in the southeastern suburbs, which is marvellous. It only took us about three years during the pandemic to complete one extra lane. Way to go, Vic Roads and state government and all those contractors involved. Well done. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about Tesla service. My experience has been, I've only had one service so far. So the first service was after two and a half years. It was pretty streamlined. Everything was done via the app. I just booked it online. And I think overall, the people in the service center were relatively young and often don't know much about the car itself. But I do feel a bit sorry for them as a car is like a tech product. So people have done heaps of research online and they're probably asking them all these detailed questions. It's probably the most scrutinized brand in modern times when it comes to cars. And I think the service people, you know, they do the best they possibly can. But, you know, you've got Tesla geeks out there who ask specific questions, which those people may not know the answers of. Now, I'm part of an online Tesla forum. There's multiple of them, various complaints about the Tesla service. I don't think it's Mercedes or BMW standard, but it's okay. But overall, I think the Tesla service can improve. You know, it's pretty average. 
The car does come with roadside assist when you first purchase it. And the battery warranty is 160,000 last I checked and 80,000 uh, Odo for build warranty. And thankfully, I never had to use it. I wonder what would happen in maybe a couple of years time when I might need to change the battery or something. But for now, it looks like the battery is okay. Uh, they've told me I should get it probably around half a million kilometers from the battery. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if I'm lucky, maybe a mil. I just don't think I'll get that. I'll probably get about 400,000 or 300,000 kilometers and I'll probably just die one day on the freeway. I think newer batteries though, you're looking at about half a million kilometer Odo, I think from the battery, which is pretty damn good when you think about it. I don't think an ICE car would last half a million kilometers before the engine dies or the battery dies. Now the annoying bits of the car, basic things like seat warmers in the back are an option when I bought it. I think it's standard now, hopefully. Again, making it optional is a bit lame for a so-called high-tech car. The good thing is, because the hardware is built in, it can be activated via the app for an upgrade, which I think is lame. The lack of some buttons, climate control, etc. Look, I don't think it's bothered me too much, except the buttons I wish they had was headlights. The voice function will work for such features in the future, I hope. And the wiper function, the auto wiper, is crap in the Model 3. And they seem to have just complicated it by trying to reinvent the wheel by using AI technology or some rubbish. It's just shithouse. The auto high beams, absolute rubbish. Shithouse. Again, Elon Musk, if you're listening, which I think you should be, you should be listening to Dev Raga. It's the worst auto high beam system I have ever used. It's rubbish. And rubbish is probably too nice a word. It's actually pretty shit. Now, when you use the heater, the other bad thing about the car is in my car, because it's an old version of the M3, it just uses so much more battery power. The newer versions of the car, the made in China versions, are much more efficient heat pumps, which reduces this risk. And for some odd reason, some drives are some ICE cars, is the other bad thing about it, usually AMG drivers or, you know, the Volkswagen GTI or whatever it is, the Holden or Ford drivers, they seem to challenge a drag race at the lights. As a good driver... I don't participate in such drag races. So you need to be really careful with the acceleration of these electric cars because it's addictive. You can easily land you in trouble when it comes to speeding. Now, I'm very careful when it comes to this. Indeed, I've never had a speeding fine ever with my Tesla Model 3. So I haven't lost my license and I haven't had any demerit points on my record since I purchased the car. I mean, it's just amazing. So things are looking really good. Now, the insurance costs, that's really important. When I compared the insurance costs for the car, uh, it was very similar. I'm paying around $1,047, used to be close to $1,500, but I've just negotiated. It'll get cheaper and cheaper as car becomes more and more popular. EVs are becoming more popular these days. Now, surprisingly, when I checked my records, I used to pay around 1100 bucks for my ICE car from memory. So I've heard of low quotes for the EVs, uh, Model 3 for around 800 bucks. Uh, and sometimes I've heard up to $600. That's significantly cheaper. Now, insurance, of course, depends on where you are, how you drive, where you live, your current and past claims, where you park your car, blah, 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 your insurance record as, as well. Uh, but I went from $1,500 to $1,047 this year. I got a pretty massive discount. Basically, I just haggled my price down. So what do I do with my cost savings, right? We talked about all these cost savings that I have by driving an EV. I tend to put it towards investments. I want my money to grow. I don't spend it because I figured I need to spend it on a car anyway. I had to bought it the ICE car, so it's straight to my index funds. Thank you very much. Now, I calculated 
it's likely to go to about seven figures if I did this into my retirement, if I saved roughly the same amounts, if I drove roughly the same amounts, which I probably will in the short term, but probably won't in the long term. But I just don't see myself ever buying a nice car unless something drastic happens in my life. Now, what about the Vic EV road tax? Some other states are considering it. It's a uniquely Victorian thing at the time of recording. This has been a controversial charge on EV owners. It's called the ZLEV charge, which is a zero and low emissions vehicle charge. And this includes EVs, hydrogen powered cars, plug-in hybrids. It does not include conventional hybrids, believe it or not, like Camry hybrids, et cetera, which are batteries, but largely run on fuel. Now, the basic charge is based on how much you use the road, so how many kilometers you've traveled. So you can see that it will adversely affect me because I do drive a lot. And the way it works is once you buy your ZLEV car, Vic Roads will send you an online notification or letter which asks you to take a photo of your odometer every year and declare it. I suspect they have some sort of software that can read photos so you can really lie on your odometer declaration. You can't really do that if you, you know, don't lie. I know many people have uploaded images with obscenities to Vic Roads because they feel strongly about them. I'm not sure whatever happened to those photos, but essentially you take a photo of your odometer and you send it to Vic Roads via the website. Now, the EV community in Victoria have felt really hard done by this tax because the uproar is it is unfair, it hinders people's affinity to buy more EVs, and the world needs to get away from fossil fuels and oil for powering our transportation. That is generally the viewpoint of EV drivers. And remember, if you still plug your EV into the dirty fuel source, it is still cheaper and cleaner and more efficient than driving a nice car. So that is a myth that needs to be broken. Uh, So what are the charges for the EV road tax? For EVs, it's 2.5 cents per kilometre. For plug-in EVs, it's 2 cents per kilometre. So what's the background about all this? What essentially it is, is basically it's a road tax. It's an extra charge that EV drivers have to pay. Now for petrol, diesel and gas-powered cars, the Commonwealth government charges fuel excise charges on those fuel, which is a tax. It currently sits at 42.3 cents per litre for petrol and diesel vehicles and 13.8 cents per litre of LPG. Now, of course, this is before the recent, at the time of recording, which is in early April, the federal government budgetary measures to ease this tax, remember, by up to 50%. And when I say at the time of recording, really, this is actually, I'm recording it in 2023, but this episode, little bits and pieces were borrowed from 2022. So they actually introduced it in April last year by discounting it by 50%. So you get a 20 cents off per litre in fuel excise charges. Now, the Victorian government, which I think is the only state which does this, thanks Dan Andrews, states that it'll use any revenue they collect via the road tax to accelerate the adoption of zero and low emissions vehicles. Now, I haven't seen any transparency on this. If anyone else has, please let me know. If Dan Andrews is listening, I'm happy to have him on this podcast to interview him. But be prepared for a grilling because basically, how do I know my EV road usage tax is being used to the correct place? I don't. I don't get any sort of feedback from EV tax, you know, charges, invoices from Vic Roads, from the State Department, nothing. The flip side of all this is the ZLEV drivers will get a $100 concession on their road registration fees. Now, I've started paying the fee of road tax and basically I get an invoice from Vic Roads. I take a photo and I upload it and I pay it just like any other bill. There are some exclusions. So if you have an EV bike, so ZLEV bikes, you're excluded. 
mobile plant equipment, excluded. If you're traveling on private roads, excluded. Now, interestingly, traveling interstate, if you're a Victorian driving interstate, it's not an exemption. So if I drive interstate, the tax still applies and goes to the Victorian government. That's a very clever way to raise money on the backs of other states. So if you're New South Wales and other states listening in and you're bordering on Victoria, guess what? We get paid, the Victorian government gets paid, even if Victorians drive in your state and use your infrastructure. So putting all this in mind, the road tax over the last three and a bit years for me would have been, that I'm calculating for the entire time of ownership, even though the road tax was only introduced in July 2021, but I bought the car in September 2019. Again, I'm skewing it against the EV. I'm making it very clear that I'm very ice focused here to absolutely show and prove a point that to buy and drive an EV is very, very cheap. So if I did that for three and a half years, it's going to be $5,000 or $1,666 per year. Let's add this to the overall cost of my EV. Now, the new total is $6,211 plus $5,000 over the three and a half years is $11,211.79, the total cost of ownership when it comes to usage, not in terms of the actual cost of buying the car. So my savings, worst case scenario is non-European car is $23,836. Best case scenario is $19,386. My case specific scenario is $20,875 over three and a half years. So on a per year basis for me, that's $6,262. Now I started off around 6,000 mark when I first started recording these episodes. But when the EV road tax was introduced, the savings became around mid fives per year. But now it's back above 6,000 per year savings because of the rise in petrol prices. And I just don't think petrol prices will come down long term. So what do I think about this tax? Well, roads have to be maintained. Feds and states will lose money if everyone shifts to EVs all at once. And they're trying to recoup the cost. Fair enough. And I think over time, the tax kind of makes sense. Like all things in life, this penalizes people who travel more to work. And we can get into the whole socioeconomic situation about this, but that's another whole other topic. But I think it's an okay tax. And I think soon all states will tend to have it. Already the misinformation is rife about this tax. People who drive ICE cars, who spend 42 cents per litre on tax in terms of filling up their fuel, are thinking a 2.5 cents per kilometre tax is going to cost more. You're paying 42 cents per litre of fuel in tax. Your government is ripping you off right now, but a 2.5 cents per kilometre tax is too much. That's the myth, and we've got to change that myth. We've got to change the narrative. It's still cheaper to buy and drive an EV. And let's face it, for the average driver, this only adds about $375 in their budget for 15,000 kilometres per year on an average driving habit basis. But remember, they will save immensely on the fuel charges and on the servicing costs. So if it was me, what I would do, I'd do it slightly differently. I would charge a tax, a road user tax on ICE cars to help transition people to EVs quicker. And then when you hit mass transition, introduce an EV road tax for everyone. Now, the way that they're doing it at the moment in Victoria, it just delays EV take-ups for new customers based on the perception, the perception, the optics, that EVs are more expensive to run, which they're not. Even with a new tax, they're not. And of course, recent cost of living pressures and rising interest rates, blah, 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 blah. If the government imposes a ICE car usage road tax, they're toast. So it's a poor strategy, I get it, for them to do this 
and that's why they won't. But I think if you're in it for a new car in the market, you need to test drive an EV. It doesn't have to be a Tesla, it can be a cheaper one. It is fast becoming the most cost-effective solution for people when it comes to mobility. And cars will be mobility devices, just like phones are communication devices. So if you're in the market for a new car, you need to test drive an EV. Give it a crack, give it a go, because it is going to be cheaper in the long run. Now, what about drive time lethargy? I think it's important to discuss. Fatigue is a big factor when driving long distances. I was initially concerned that driving on autopilot, about 80% of my drives will mean I will get more sleepy, more bored, more lethargic. But actually, it's the opposite. Since buying an EV, I've taken my second car, which is a SUV, a Japanese SUV, on long road trips of 800 kilometers or more, and the concentration required to drive for such periods is actually quite high. Your arms start hurting when you hold that steering wheel because it doesn't have autopilot. With autopilot, you still hold the steering wheel, but the torque required to keep autopilot active is actually quite low. I also think autopilot is a very poor term. I think Tesla shouldn't be using that terminology anymore. I think they call it auto steer function, which is a safer way to describe it. So now I can drive two hours at a time without much lethargy and I'm fresher after the drive compared to driving a car without any auto steer or pilot function. And I think moving forward, auto steer and autopilot technology will just be standard in all of the cars. And I think my younger child may not need to have a driver's license in the next 15 years at a current rate of technology developments. That's a real improvement in safety. If people don't drive cars, the whole thing's going to be safer. Now, speeding fines, Zen sort of alluded to that. Have I received any speeding fines because the acceleration is faster than my previous ICE car? Of course not. Speeding fines are not tax deductible, by the way. I haven't received speeding fines. But some people have asked me this question, can I tax deduct speeding fines when I go to work um, because it's you know work-related? Even if it's for business or work purposes, and the answer is generally no. Not really a problem for me because I've never had one. Um, competitors, EV car market in Australia, how does it compare to the Model 3? Since my last episode, there are some credible competitors to Tesla, especially the Model 3. More competition is good, but the Model 3 is still the king of EVs in Australia. And I think it's actually outsell similar standard ICE cars too. Here are the stats according to Drive, which was published on the 5th of April, 2023. Two thirds of EVs sold in January, 2023 are Model 3s. The Jan sales was 2,929 units. Compare this to the Ford Ranger, which is 4,749. The Hilux was 4,131 and the CX-3 was 2,417. So it outsold the CX-3. And this year, Model 3 is expected to sell around 25,000 units, but likely will sell around 30,000 units as petrol prices and cost of living rises occur when it comes to ICE cars. Now, I just serviced my ICE SUV at a cost of $995, which is insanity. Tesla worldwide production is going to be 1.4 million in 2023. I'm aiming to be 2 million next year. And when you look at Musk, he lost about $100 billion in 2022 in valuation of his net worth and now worth $199 billion roughly and recently lost his number one spot to Bernard Ornott and the family who are owners of Louis Vuitton and other brands which, yeah, never really heard about that guy. Interestingly, Larry Ellison is number four in terms of world's richest person. We kind of never hear about him, but he was the founder of Oracle, which is a software company. Now, after Model 3, here are the top sellers of EVs in 2022. Model Y, 
BYD Atto 3 is number two. I think this car in the flesh is amazing. I see it a lot now uh, in Melbourne. Polestar 2, seen a fair bit of these on the road. MG ZS EV, Kona Electric, XC40, which is a Volvo. Hyundai Ioniq 5, amazing in the flesh. I've actually seen the Ioniq 6 in the flesh. Not a great fan. The EQA Mercs, I see them quite a bit. The EQBs as well, I see them quite a bit. The iX3 BMW, haven't seen very many. The Kia EV6, which is an up-and-coming performer, and the Volvo C40. The lowest sales in terms of EVs are the Ford e-Transit. At the time of recording, only one vehicle sold in the country, but this will probably improve over time. So in the future, which cars to watch out for? Obviously, the Tesla Model 3 and the Model Y, they're a given. They're going to be standard setters and leaders in Australia. But I've been watching closely to the Polestar and BYD. BYD produces the most EVs in the world, including buses. Their cars are amazing on the flesh. They look amazing. I'm not sure about the reliability in the range. I haven't really done my research on it, but it will come. Uh, the BYD, they start around forty-five to 48000 which is significantly cheaper than the Teslas without any government incentives. So it's still a bit on the expensive side, but you need to factor in the cost savings that I've just discussed in this episode. And I think in 2023, if you're in the market for a car, like I said before, EVs must be considered as one of the options, hands down. Now, lastly, before I give you my final opinion, what about this FBT exemption if you buy an EV? It's Started in July the 1st, 2022, what's that all about? So what is FBT? This is a tax that employers have to pay for providing you, the employee, a fringe benefit. This is because if the employer had given you that extra income instead of giving you the fringe benefit, then you would have paid extra tax on your income. So by providing you a fringe benefit, it hopefully attracts you to work with them, but the ATO may miss out and therefore the employer is having to pay an extra tax for doing so. It's a good thing for you because you would save on some tax. The FBT year is April 1st, March 31st, which is different to the financial year. Some examples of fringe benefits are employee cars, car parking, gym memberships, school fees reimbursements, salary sacrifice or salary packaging, free tickets to concerts or sporting events, etc. Things like super contributions, salary and wages, dividends, employee share acquisition schemes, all of that is examples of fringe benefits. So how much is the FPT? Well, to calculate this, the employers must gross up the benefit to th- like how much an employee would have to pay if they had done it themselves, then apply a 47% tax bracket to that. And the benefit is mainly to the employee, but the employer can also claim a deduction on the cost and also the GST on it as tax credits. So what's the policy? From 1st of July, 2022, the federal government has changed the rules such that employers do not have to pay that FBT on the grossed up value of their fringe benefit they offer to employers if it's an EV. So when you think about it, it's a real cost saving to the employer as well, which incentivizes them to provide an EV as a fringe benefit. The value for the employee is that they get to buy an EV, hopefully at a discount, but also the cost savings associated with this. And remember, usually when the employer has to pay the FBT, some of the costs are transferred to the employee. But in this case, since there is no FBT, you save on some of the costs, not all of it. There are some exemptions to this rule. The car must be an EV and it should not be subject to the luxury car tax. So you can't buy the Porsche Taycan, for example. And nowadays, there are plenty of EVs which fall below the LCT, which I think the Tesla also qualifies for. 
Actually, it doesn't even have to be a full EV. It can be a hydrogen vehicle or a plug-in electric hybrid vehicle, PHEV. But unfortunately, if it's a PHEV, it won't apply from April 25th, 2023. So at the time of publication of this episode, if you buy a PHEV, unfortunately, you won't be eligible for the FPT exemption. That rule has just changed. Now, what about home charging stations electricity costs? Well, this gets a bit tricky. Home charging stations are not part of this scheme, and I think they should be. Electricity is part of this scheme, but there is no current way, as far as I've done my research on, unless you usually install a specific meter for the car electricity, to find out exactly how much of your home electricity bill is actually due to your car, less than your solar use. So it gets a little bit complicated. The registration and insurance can be included in the cost of the FPT exemption. So do do the numbers stack up? And yes, salary packaging is allowed in this scheme. There are various calculators out there, and I will include a shout out to Dr. Chang as one of the listeners who's actually developed his own calculator, and I'll put this in the show notes. It's phenomenal, it's easy to use, and it's very detailed, and it goes through all the cost savings. But my thoughts are, if you're considering a new car, consider an EV, and this FPT exemption policy for salary packaging makes it more attractive. But please don't do this if you have a functioning car right now. Usually people calculate their personal use by saying a flat 20% of their car is for personal use and the rest of the car is for work use. But some people prefer to use a logbook method. For more information on all this about cars and taxations, I've done a detailed episode in episode 95 about this. I don't think much of the taxation has changed, so go back and listen to it if you're interested. It's very detailed. So the calculation for FPT goes like this. If you use 20% of your car for personal use and bought it for, let's say, 65000 the FPT is calculated as 0.2 multiplied by 65000 then multiplied by the grossed up rate of 2.0808, which is what it is. Don't ask me why. I Googled it, which comes to around $27,000. Then you pay 47% tax on that, which is 12700 That is a rough estimate of FPT tax, which the employer would have had to pay had they given you that benefit. But now, because it's an EV, they don't have to pay that. So that's a significant saving. The employee will need to include that in your gross stuff fringe benefits in their taxable income because it still counts as income. This may affect your government benefits like rebates, subsidies, etc. So primarily this FPT exemption, although it does benefit the employees, primarily it benefits the employers arguably more because that's a huge saving when you think about it for the employer. And we know some of these costs are actually passed on to the employees. So check with a company that helps salary sacrifice or salary packaging your car. Talk to them about this and ensure you're not paying too much in fees. And like I said, I'll include Dr. Chang's FPT tax calculator and the discounts. So it's a pretty decent scheme, I think. And I think for fleet operators and large companies, it's quite worth it. And in fact, a lot of public hospitals, this is a very good thing. And this means owners of fleet vehicles will likely switch to EVs in the future And we need this switch to make transportation more sustainable and cheaper for everyone. And how is Australia's transport system cars responsible for emissions per year? It's around 18 to 20%. So that's sizable. And the other benefits of EV cars, which I haven't even touched on, is it's zero emissions. So our cities will likely be clearer in the sky in the future, even if you use coal-powered technology to drive the EV because it's more efficient. So what's the overall opinion? Definitely my EV, the Model 3 Standard Range Plus, is the best car that I've ever driven. And realistically, I don't think I can envisage myself going back to driving a nice car from a financial point of view. I'm simply saving too much money. 
And it doesn't make any sense for me to go back to an ice car. Now, we haven't even taken into account any of the health benefits, no exhaust fumes, and I don't buy the whole environmental arguments, right? For me, it's a financial decision first. EVs can't be mainstream unless the bottom line works out for the average consumer. And in my case, it's worked out beautifully. And once it does, I think we will look at ice cars like we look at steam trains right now. It'll be relegated to the past. Now, that's enough geeking out on this episode. I think if you're in the market for a new car, consider an EV. It's fun. It's relatively cheap to maintain and drive. And most of all, it just might work out financially beneficial. Just a word of advice. Number one, don't buy a brand new car unless you're a net worth millionaire already. Number two, don't borrow money to buy a car for personal use. Number three, stick to the 20% of after-tax income rule for buying a car, particularly if you're not a net worth millionaire. That is, don't buy too much car. And number four, I'm not against buying nice cars. But please do your research, be conservative and take your time. Just because there's an FBT tax exemption doesn't mean you need to go and buy a new Tesla. Because a car, if bought at the wrong time in your life, can destroy your finances for 10 plus years. Now, remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.